says, I thank God always when I pray. I pray often for you, and I begin by thanking God. And what I am thanking him for is the reason I have to petition him. So because God has given you faith and love through hope, I can ask him for more. I can ask him for something else. And that's what the petition that we're going to hear next consists of. What, uh, what Paul desires for the Colossians when he prays for them. Um, and this introduction, which you can see in the outline there, goes more or less through the whole first chapter and the, the beginning of chapter 2. Um, this is setting the foundation for the, the teaching that Paul is going to give to the Colossians. So, with that in mind, let's jump in to verse 9. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry, Carol. We're collecting offerings today for the victims of Hurricane Sandy. The money will go through Lutheran Church Charities to support the victims of Hurricane Sandy. All right. Thanks for the reminder. Anything else I've forgotten? No. No? Okay. Great. Um, Let's take a look then at verse 9. Verse 9 begins... Um, I gave you the text so that we're all reading the same version. And then the indentation and the highlighting is to sort of lead you along the path that I'm thinking of as I'm presenting this. Um, It begins, verse 9, and so, and that and so um, is showing that what follows is a direct consequence of what was before. So because because of these things I'm thankful for, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that. Okay, so here, here's what Paul is asking for. And so from the day we heard, we heard of your faith and love from Epaphras, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul's, Paul's prayer is primarily that the people of Colossae be filled with the knowledge of God's will. We talked about this a little bit last week, but what does Paul mean by God's will. What does it mean to know God's will? Our faith, faith, right. To know God's will um, is to know, this is what I said last week, it's to know his disposition towards us. how how um, How he wants us to understand his relationship to us. His will towards us is self sacrificial love for our sins. To, to preserve us, to bless us. That is his will toward us. There are all kinds of other things which belong to God's will, but the knowledge of God's will that is the starting place for, for wisdom and spiritual understanding, that is an understanding of, uh, that is faith, an understanding of God's love for us and the care that he gives for us. So when Paul prays for the Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, he's he's asking for the, the foundation to be increased, to be built upon. This foundation is the key, the cornerstone. That's why when we come to church on a Sunday morning, we basically do the same thing every time, right? We, we, we begin by confessing our sins and receiving God's forgiveness. I mean, this is, this is the foundation, the starting place, the knowledge of God's will, which leads to everything else we do in the divine service. But that's where we begin, and that's what Paul prays for here. Any questions? Okay, so he asks for the knowledge of, their, knowledge of his will, which is manifest in spiritual wisdom and understanding, which uh, wisdom and understanding are kind of, um, kind of nebulous terms, and we often think of um, wisdom in uh, worldly terms. Um, 
But when it comes to spiritual wisdom, as far as our own lives as Christians, the key is being able to understand how God's will relates to us in our lives. Um, and not, not in some sense of, you know, what does God want me to do? How does God want me to make this decision? How does God want me to move forward in my life? But understanding how, uh, how God's will interprets our lives for us. So the suffering that we'd experience in life is our, our being put to death in Christ, with Christ. And the joy that we experience in the gospel is precisely Christ's resurrection in us, being raised with Christ. Um, and all of this stems from, from baptism, uh, our death and resurrection that we experience in baptism. Paul really builds on this quite a bit as we go along, so keep that in mind. But let's move on to verse 10, 11, and 12. Verses 10, 11, and 12. Um, Paul asks for the knowledge of God's will to be given to the Colossians so that, so as to, so he wants them to have this knowledge so that they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. So those, those five bold-faced words and phrases there are the consequences, the benefits of knowing God's will. First of all, that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And this is, this is going to be kind of a, one of those simple questions where the answer is so obvious, but I'll ask it anyways. Why is it important to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Why is that something that we should be concerned about? Why is it important to behave like Christians? Yes? Because by touching holy things, you become more holy. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So it, it, is, it is sort of, um, it's sort of, if you, if you walk in a manner unworthy of the Lord, it's not that your sins are counted against you. Your sins are forgiven. They've been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. That's not at stake any longer. What's at stake is your, your attitude towards God and your, uh, your desire to remain in his will. All right? So if we put ourselves in a position where we're walking in a manner unworthy of the Lord, we are confessing that, that we don't desire his forgiveness. Um, this, is the, this is why touching clean things is, is so beneficial, touching unclean things is so dangerous, not because God counts our sins against us once again, but because we put ourselves in a position where we alienate ourselves from God. James. Yeah, hopefully I'm not getting ahead to the bearing too far, but the walking in a manner worthy isn't going to be just for us either, because like you said, since we are forgiven, yeah. and we know that it's not, uh, we're not completely in jeopardy you know, when we fail to do that because we have forgiveness in Christ, that walking is for the good of our neighbor. Absolutely, so, yep. Absolutely. So hypocrisy um, is, what, is, a, is what's at stake here. If we walk in a manner unworthy, we're saying one thing with our mouths, confessing something in, in our hearts, um, and then doing something different, which is true of all of us. We're all hypocrites, right? We, we are at the same time sinners and saints, and we confess our unworthiness before God. But if we embrace that hypocrisy, it's dangerous for us, and it's also dangerous for the world who sees uh, this mixed confession, this, this hypocrisy. They, it's confusing to the world to see believers behaving in a way which is not worthy 
of the calling to which they've been called. So we do it not just for our own sakes, but also for, for our neighbors and for the world before whom we're confessing. So it's important to keep in mind the distinction here. We're walking in a manner worthy of God is not, um, is not law like this, as Pastor Bruzik would do, right? It's not, or else, you know? It's, this is, this is the right idea. By walking in a manner worthy, you are um, giving a good witness to the world and you are preserving your faith, right? Yes, Marge. It's so much the theme of right. the article. Yeah. The, Right, the, the welcome in the, in, the divine, in the service folder um, articulates that pretty well. That um, this is, this is simply, it just simply makes sense. This is, what, this is what we're called to do. Now, of course, we always have to acknowledge that we fail to do this. And that acknowledgement, that confession of sin, um, is what distinguishes Christians from non-Christians. So the rest of the world, um, you, may, you, know, you may be able to acknowledge your failures, your shortcomings in your own life, but... The fact that you aren't righteous and don't live up to God's standards, that's something which only comes by the Holy Spirit through faith. And that's what, that's what sets Christians apart. Job was a righteous man not because he did everything right. He, he, you know, he followed God's law purely, but he confessed his sins and he sacrificed to God on behalf of his children even. Thus, thus their sins be counted against them. He, his posture towards God was one of humility. Is there a question here or is it... Your hand's not up? Okay, all right. All right, anything else here? So that's walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Bearing fruit and increasing. We heard this language in verses 1 through 8. Um, do you remember what bearing fruit and increasing calls to mind? Um, where else do we hear the, the notion of um, bearing fruit, being fruitful? Genesis and multiplying, right? What's being alluded to here? Paul will make explicit in just a, just a moment. Um, what we have in Christ is a new creation. Creation was, um, was undermined by the, the fall of, of man into sin. Um, creation, which God made to be good, was no longer good because of our sin. And here in Christ, we have a new creation. The, the genesis of something good again. And so when Paul prays for the Colossians to bear fruit and increase, he's asking that creation be made good again in them. And creation manifest in their good works and also in their knowledge of God. So he's, it's sort of a cyclical thing, a, a spiral, if you will. Paul prays for their knowledge, which produces good works, which produces more knowledge, which produces good works. It's, this is the shape of the Christian life. Um, we, we always return to the knowledge that we have, the faith that we have through through the Holy Spirit, we always return to that as the starting point, um, and we pray that our lives would, would uh, ascend in this fashion so that we're always increasing in good works. All right. Now, verse 11, Paul prays that the Colossians will be strengthened for all endurance and patience with joy. Which is, uh, it's, it's kind of a... It sounds, it sounds trite almost. I, I pray that God would give you strength. Um, but when Paul prays specifically that they be given strength for endurance and patience with joy, he's praying for something which is really uh, pretty impossible, right? So in the face of trials and afflictions, to endure and be patient is one thing. But to endure and be patient with joy 
is, so, is something completely beyond the scope of what, what we're capable of as humans. I mean, right? We can endure and be patient and grumble, right? <laughs> we do that pretty well. But this joy is, is not, is not self-evident. And that comes, um, that comes through the grace of God. And this strength, if you, look, if you notice, it's according to God's glorious might. It's not according to some human measure of strength where we just we get by, we, we, you know, we lower our heads and muscle through. It's God's glorious might, which is, by all standards of might, the greatest there is, right? There's, there's, no, there's no lack of strength coming from God in this regard. Yeah. Right. Singing. Yeah. Okay, so he, this, is, this is what he's describing that when the Holy Spirit is in you and God gives you that, you can do it. Right. Exactly. Now, it, it, so Paul embodies it, and we we aspire to this, um, but it doesn't always it doesn't work out that way, right? So. Um, we, we suffer and we, we try to endure and be patient and we, we fail. Um, this is why this is our prayer. This is our petition before God. This is what God wants for us and this is what we ask him for um, because it's his blessing. It's, it's what he desires our lives to look like as Christians. Um, and we have the great confidence that if not in this life, in the next life, it will be characterized by joy alone. No suffering, right? We have that to look forward to. Um, in the meantime, we, we aspire and we pray uh, for this blessing. Okay, so the last thing that Paul asks for as a consequence of God's, the knowledge of God's will is that the Colossians themselves give thanks to the Father. So Paul's prayer begins with thanksgiving, on account of which he asks for the knowledge of God's will and he desires this especially so that the Colossians themselves will give thanks. And so thanksgiving, you know, this expression of gratitude is, um, is the, it's the language of faith. So when, when God says to you, I've, I've, died, I've sent my son to die for you, I love you, I want to bless you, here, have my life. Thanksgiving is saying, amen. Thank you very much. Yes, Lord, that's, that's, that's mine. You gave it to me. And so... Um, this giving thanks to the Father is, is a direct consequence of that faith. That's the language, the expression of faith, um, whereby we, you know, we, we speak to God and, and receive his gifts. Everybody good? Everybody on board? Okay. So now, at this point, we enter into um, sort of the crux of this introduction. Um, Paul is about to outline why it is that the Colossians, or what it is that the Colossians have to give thanks for. Um, sure, they have, they have faith and, and love through hope, but what is the character of that hope? Where does it come from? How, does that, how is that fleshed out? Um, and that's what Paul's about to do here. This is the, the foundation of their faith, the source of their hope. So he begins with giving thanks to the Father, who, the second half of verse 12 there, has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the Father does these things for us. He qualifies us, first of all, to share in the inheritance um, with, the son, with the saints in light. So 
Uh, let, let's, let's parse out a few of these things here. What are the qualifications for inheritance? What does it mean to be qualified, to be fit to be an heir? How, do, how does that normally work in the world? You're a son. You're a son. Right, absolutely. Yeah. So it's not, um, it's not a, a simple uh, pushing around of papers here. Uh, we can't, we, you don't become an heir uh, of God's inheritance, the inheritance of the saints, just because God works, works out a few, you know, he, he works things out that way. It's because God has made you sons. He's made you children, rightful heirs, along with Christ. The inheritance is yours. So God, the Father, qualifies you. And this her- inheritance calls to mind, um, you know, the, the whole biblical narrative, especially uh, Israel, as they're on their exodus out of Egypt, headed to the promised land. They are God's chosen people, the children of God, um, and their inheritance is the promised land to which they're destined. Um, So with that in mind, we as the children of God, as qualified for the inheritance, are the new Israel. We are the new children of Abraham, um, whom God has chosen to receive his promises. Paul also uh, contrasts the domain of darkness. So he delivered us from the domain of darkness. Um, contrasts that with the saints who are in light. And we, we hear this language frequently, the, the contrast between dark and light, and we often think of it just simply as um, something, uh, the difference between good and evil, right? light and dark, good and evil. What characterizes darkness? What's the difference between the saints who are in light and those who are in the domain of darkness. What's, what's being compared there? Life and death. Life and death. Okay. Good. Um, what is unique about... Uh, go ahead, James. Um, light, I would make the same as uh, wisdom and understanding, and darkness is lack of understanding. Right. So when, when things are light, when there is light, you can see, you can perceive. When there's darkness, things are hidden. You don't know. You don't understand. Bruce. Right. And that the people Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, so so the those who live in darkness, those those who choose to live in darkness do so because they have something to hide. Those who remain in the light are in the light because they have something to show. And, and it's our works who, which, which have their, 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 their glory because they're brought about by Christ. Our works are beneficial, are, are worth putting in the light because Christ has redeemed them. Christ has made our works good. Okay, very good. Um, we also have this language of transference. Transferred from the kingdom of, the, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And this is, this is straight up baptism talk here. Um, this is what happens in baptism. You, you descend into the font and you come out on the other side as a member of a new kingdom, a, a, a member of the beloved son, uh, the kingdom of the beloved son. You once belonged to a different king um, to whom you were enslaved in your sin. And now you are freed. Um, that's what characterizes the kingdom of the son. It's freedom. You, you no longer are bound to your sin. Um, you are free 
to be child, children of God, to do the works that God has set apart for you to do. This is, so in the background, in the background of everything Paul is talking about here is what happens in baptism. Um, transference from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the sun, going from dark to light, from dead to alive, um, becoming heirs, going from having been enemies of God to the very children of God. I mean, that, that contrast is stark. It's not, it's not something trivial. The, what you once were um, was the exact opposite, precise opposite of what you are now in Christ. Um, this is, and this is what the Father has worked on your behalf. And all of this, Paul says, um, pertains to the forgiveness of sins. So in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Sin is what, sin is what, uh, what brings guilt into our consciences and condemns us before God, and we have the forgiveness of sins. Uh, it's what Christ offers to the world when he's preaching um, that nobody else can offer, that nobody believes can be offered. Um, you know, they say, who is this that even forgives sins? Christ has the authority, divine authority of God, to forgive sins. Um, and that's what, that's what he gives us. All right. Still good? I'm moving pretty quick here. Maybe, uh, well, I want to get through this. I told Pastor Bruzik that I'd get through verse 23, so um, I better do it. Now, I give you in this, this box um, a poem. It's a poem that comes in the, in the middle of the, uh, the section. It's poetic in this sense that um, Paul uses lots of devices, poetic devices, to emphasize what he's trying to communicate. Um, and you can see that, I tried to indicate that by the, the coloring and the indentation there. So verses 15 and 16 um, are, are echoed in verses 18b and 19 and 20. Um, and then the, the center, the turning point is verses 17 and 18. So we'll, we'll, we'll dig this apart a little bit. Let me read it to you once and then um, we'll take it apart a little bit here. So verse 15 He, the beloved Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. <coughs> so the, the big movement here in this poem um, is from the first section to the second section, and it's a movement from creation to new creation. It's the role of Christ in the creation of the world and the creation of the universe to the role of Christ in uh, the new creation, in redemption, in reconciling the world to God, bringing about peace, the peace which um, restores our relationship to God. So we begin by identifying Christ as the one who, through whom the world was created, and Christ is also the one through whom we are redeemed. So let's start with uh, the first section. How is Christ um, involved in creation? How is he the creator of the world? Um, it, it, It begins with this statement about Christ's identity. He is the image of the invisible God. So 
Um, what does that mean? What does that mean? How does that, what does that tell you about Christ? He is the image of the invisible God. Krista. We can see God. Yeah, yeah, we can see God. God who is otherwise, um, who otherwise can't be seen. Because if we saw him, he would, be, he would destroy us. We would be destroyed. And who otherwise um, works in ways that are beyond our comprehension, God became manifest in Christ. He became visible to us in Christ. And Christ is not just, um, not just a shadow or a, uh, you know, some sort of a, a reflection of God, but he is the very image of God. The image into which Adam and Eve were first created, which they... Which they um, destroyed by their fall into sin or corrupted by their fall into sin. Christ is that image in its purity. Christ is the image of the invisible God. So what that means for us is that when, when, we, when we hear about Christ, when we hear about his work in creation and in new creation, we're not just hearing about um, some prophet or some man, but we're talking about God himself, what God does for us um, in humility. Uh, being, God making himself visible is, uh, is, is, is an act of humility, condescension. He's, um, he's interacting us with, with us on, on a level that we can comprehend. So that's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So Christ is before the world was. Um, he says in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. So Christ is the eternal God. Um, he's, he's, once again, not just man. James. Right, yeah. Yeah, so you could look at 15b and say, if, if Christ is the firstborn of all creation, that means he's a part of creation. He was created by God, which um, it, it does damage to Christ's glory. If, if Christ is a creature, then he's, not, then he's not God. God is characterized by being uncreated. before He's the creator. So the way to think about it is... Um, uh, well, first of all, what we know about Christ from other places in Scripture, right? So we know that Christ was begotten of the Father. The Son was begotten of the Father, not created. Um, but here, when, it, when we use the word firstborn, it's a description of not, not simply um, temporal, uh, a, a temporal thing. He wasn't just born before everybody else, but he is preeminent, as we find out later. He is the, the heir, the oldest Son. He is the first one, the one who sets the standard. Again, when we see he's the firstborn from the dead, he is the one who opens the grave. It's not just that he was the first of many, but as the firstborn, he was the one who opened the grave. Um, and, that, and that sets apart his, his relationship to creation. Let me go over here first, Bruce. Born is a term that refers to man. Yeah. Born is a term Right, and this is something that, that Jesus does to our vocabulary. And it's important. Excited here. This is, in, this is important to keep in mind whenever we, whenever we um, use our language to describe God or the things of God. That when, when our vocabulary is applied to Christ, um, it takes on meanings that, that uh, are unique. The, the Lutheran confessions talk this way. So, we ask the question, how is Jesus present in the Lord's Supper? And the answer really is, he's present in a way that nothing else is ever present anywhere, right? 
It's unique. It's its, its own category. And, and that's, that's sort of what's going on here. When we say Christ is the firstborn, it's unique. He is, he's redefining the, the term. Laura. So we, we have to go back to the, the first part of that where it says he is the image. Yeah. With that first, and then it's presented for us in that firstborn. Absolutely. Yeah, they're connected. Absolutely. Yep, they, they have to remain together. Right. So he is, um, he is both of these things. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Okay. Now, um, that, Paul parses that out a little bit further for us. For by him all things were created. And so I underlined these prepositions, by, through, and for, that you have in verse 16. Um, the ESV uses the word by, but it's actually the same preposition, bear with me here, that you see in verse 19 that's underlined there. It's the same word. So we have in verse 16, by, through, and for, and in verse 19, in, through, and to. So those three prepositions are all the same. They're, they're parallel. Okay? And what is meant here is not that, um, is not that, Christ is, that, God, that God used Christ to create the world, but that Christ is... The, the agent of God's creation. Christ is God creating the world. That's what, that's what characterizes Christ. In him, by him, all things were created. It was Christ who was present at creation. Um, the, very, the very incarnate word of God for us in John chapter 1, the word became flesh. That word which was spoken by God was Christ in the beginning at the creation of the world. And he created heaven and earth, visible and invisible, Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Everything in the world, everything in the universe. And when you, when you hear thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, Paul is saying it's not just, it's, it's especially those um, authorities that don't acknowledge Christ as the creator. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, Christ is the, is the creator of the world, right? It's everybody is under his authority. Everybody, um, in Romans 13, uh, all authority is, is instituted by God. Um, so everything... Is in, is, is, that is in creation, is created in Christ, created through him, and for him, at the end of the verse there. Um, and that's kind of a unique, a unique thing um, to hear. Everything was created by Christ and for him. So what does that mean? What does it mean that creation was brought about for Christ? First of all, it, it shows... You know, it, it shows that there is a purpose. It wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't that just God, God just said, hey, let's have some fun, right? Marilyn, are you? I thought it was serve. Okay, it, good. And um, how does creation serve God, serve Christ? How? What, what is, hmm, this, this gets really sophisticated here. Go ahead, Krista. Okay, yeah. In, in glorifying him, right? In, in, um, so we could put it this way. All creation was created by Christ for his glory. Now when you think about the ramifications of that in the next section, new creation, the glory of Christ is manifest in sort of the splendor of the world, the detail, the care, um, the ongoing creation. We hear about that in verse 17. And in him all things go to hold together. The world doesn't exist without the without the continued presence of God's hand. Otherwise, everything falls apart. Um, his glory is manifest in that, but his glory is more specifically and more um, profoundly expressed 
in that he gives himself in love for us, right? That Christ, Christ is glorified when he's raised up on the cross and crucified for our sins. It's, a, a, it's a, a, an exceptional play on words when, um, when he says the Son of Man must be lifted up, must be glorified. Um, and that lifting up is precisely what happened on the cross. He was lifted up on the cross for our sins. So the glory of Christ ultimately for us um, is found on the cross and we glorify Christ when we receive the gifts that he offers us through the cross. Um, so this, this you know, amounts to praise and thanksgiving in, in our worship, but it begins with faith, trusting, trusting that God's purposes are for our benefit, that his action in the world is to bless us. Uh, that's, what he, that's what he gives us in the world. That's why he created the world, um, was, was to, to bless us so that we might glorify him. Bruce. You're, you're right. And now we, um, the, the church has often talked about this. We, we want to be careful not to say that God created the world in order that we might fall into sin. He, his desire was that we remain perfect. But it is interesting, in the, in the liturgy of the church, as the Easter liturgy, I think it's um, some of the historic uh, exultants. I don't remember what we, how we translate that. Let, let, let us lift up, or let, let, let us, let us uh, exalt God. Um, there's a line which, which appears occasionally in the history of the church that says, that talks about the, um, let's see, oh, something like, oh, happy, oh, happy fall, or, oh, oh, or felicitous fall. And it's an interesting way to think about the fall into sin because while it was contrary to God's will that Adam and Eve sinned, they, they violated his will, went against, they were disobedient. Nevertheless, it serves, and this shows how God holds all things together, it serves our benefit because we get to see God's glory in the way he, the way he saves us. We get to see his glory manifest in a way that, it, that, that is beyond compare, that he would give himself to die for our sins. Um, and so in some ways we can say, you know, oh, oh happy fall that Adam and Eve fell into sin. Um, does that make sense? George. Well, you're, you're, you're right. This is, this is the, the tension that we live in as Christians. So we believe two contradictory things, right? We believe that God loves us and that we believe that God allows evil in the world, right? These two things have never been reconciled by philosophers, right? How can an all-good God allow evil in the world? And the, the, the resolution for us as Christians is seen in Christ, that God works even the greatest evil. An innocent man, the innocent very son of God, um, brings about good for creation. That the cross, this instrument of torture, is for our salvation. Um, so that's the, that's the key for us as Christians when we're presented with that, that, that paradox, that tension. Okay. So, we're not there yet. Um... I better quit now. Um, okay, well, I'll just tell Pastor Bruce like I tried. Yeah. Yes, Steve. <laughs> I think we, we kind of got there. Bruce's comment just kind of echoes what's called out here in, in 21, 22. Yeah, yeah. You know, the fact that we, all of this has happened so that we can present ourselves whole in the light of the love of Christ. Right, absolutely, yeah.
Yeah, fantastic. And, and that language there of holy and blameless um, is the language of a perfect sacrifice. So uh, when, God, said, when God, God calls on the people of Israel to bring forth a lamb, it's, it's always the firstborn, and, and it's to be without spot or blemish. Um, and when we come before God with, with all of our blemishes, um, we, we are not that perfect sacrifice, but in Christ we, we come before as, um, as what he desires, holy and blameless. Okay, let's, let's end there and we'll pick it up again. Actually, let's see, next week I think Pastor Bruzik may talk about his trip to Spain. Then the following week we have a voters meeting. And then the following week he may talk about Spain again. Um, so it may be a little while before we get back to Colossians. So keep, keep in mind what we've been, we've been doing here, all right? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Thank you very much.